You're all very welcome to what I have to call for the first time, but I'm sure not the last one, the Institute of Public Affairs here at LSE, which uh, I'm now director of. My name is Connor Geerty. I'm a professor in the law department, but this is under the aegis of the Institute of Public Affairs. And we're hoping you'll hear a lot more about the Institute. It's got a thriving master's program with students who do a two-year degree and in include some remarkable work in project work called the Capstone Project. Uh, and we're expanding and building that repertoire of activities within the Institute. And what we want to do within the LSE IPA is we want to connect up with the public realm in a way which is programmatic rather than, as it were, occasional and incidental. And what we've conceived very early on uh, as a first step in this direction is not just a simple event about one nation, but an inaugural event in a program of discussion, research, educational engagement on what we mean by this country. We know that the Labour Party has had some success in uh, taking this idea of one nation, uh, and we know that the Conservative Party proudly regards itself as a party which has originated in some ways in one nation. So we thought we'd bring these two together. Uh, we haven't got a Lib Dem dimension here. Stop giggling. But we will, we will have a Lib Dem dimension. We rely, I presume, the Secretary of State to give the Lib Dem dimension in a coalition government. Uh, and the format of the evening is as follows. We have uh, Morris Glassman. Morris is a Labour peer. Uh, who has been written up quite extensively in The Sun recently for reasons he may wish to explain and is somebody who has developed a strong perspective on one nation from a Labour Party point of view and uh, we're delighted to have him and uh, he's speaking for 15 to 20 minutes and then we have Michael Gove here who's the uh, MP for Surrey Heath and uh, relevantly of course Secretary of State for Education but he won't mind my saying I think one of the key intellectual figures driving the Conservative Party at the moment. I don't know if he's laughing nervously. Key intellectual figure. And in particular has been to some extent in the news for not entirely education-related matters recently, which are linked to some extent to what a one nation is and what this nation is. So we're delighted to have Michael Gove here this evening as well. He'll speak for about 15 or 20 minutes. And we are on a very strict deadline because we're already late because of the votes in the House. So you'll understand that we need to finish by 8.55. We will have questions and answers, and we will have some interventions from the Twitter sphere. Uh, I should at this point remind you of the hashtag, uh, which is whatever the hashtag is, <laughs> NSE One Nation. I could have worked that out given half an hour. Can you please give a good, substantial round of applause to our first speaker, Lord Morris Glassman. First of all, I'd really like to thank Connor and Perna and Sarah and all here at the Institute for Public Affairs for organising this event. Um, next week, I'm going to meet the Pope in the Vatican to discuss the tradition of Catholic social thought and its distinct stress on vocation, virtue and labour value. And I wondered what the Pope would make of the name of your institute. 
it would certainly confirm his worst fears concerning the end point of secular reason. Robespierre set up the Committee for the Promotion of Public Virtue. The LSE establishes the Institute for Public Affairs. Well, each to his own. Um, I'm also delighted to be here because I've known the new director of the LSE, Professor Craig Calhoun, for nearly 20 years, and I have the greatest respect for his integrity, his virtue, and his judgment. His work on tradition and radical politics in the 19th century, particularly the roots of radicalism, has been an extremely important reference point for the development of blue labour. Professor Calhoun wrote of Marx that, like many heirs of the Enlightenment, he cannot accept the intrusion of seemingly irrelevant tradition into the rationality of the future. That, in a nutshell, is the argument I will be making about Michael Gove's theory of modernisation this evening. (laughs) It is not to the credit of our political culture that, given the unique circumstance of a fixed-term parliament, there is so little public debate between politicians. I could understand, with six months to go to the next election, if politicians reverted to tribe and communicated only through the abusive megaphone of Twitter and I know that many are masters of the form, but the lack of substantive political debate depletes and diminishes our political culture founded upon civil disagreement. Civility is not a virtue opposed to politics, but a condition of it. I am grateful to the LSE for fulfilling its vocation as a civic institution in hosting this event. And while I do not expect that this will be the beginning of a public affair with Michael Gove, or even a civil partnership... (laughs) let alone, God forbid, the kind of loveless contractual marriage that he and his party have entered into with the Liberal Democrats. (laughs) I really do appreciate your agreement to the debate tonight. It shows confidence and courage, two important political virtues that you have also displayed as one of the two serious reforming ministers of this government. I won't mention the other one. While I think your reforms to be doomed through their inability to engage with the practice of teaching as a vocation, upheld by its living practitioners, sometimes called teachers, and by your insistence on the domination of a single interest in the governance of institutions, which is hostile to the English tradition of the balance of power, I do not doubt your sincerity and intensity of purpose, or your right as Secretary of State, to pursue them. Indeed, Michael Gove was one of the first politicians to seriously engage with the idea of one nation after Ed Miliband's speech last September. It did not take long for Mr Gove to condemn the entire concept as too conservative, an impediment to modernisation and competition, a hindrance to aspiration, excellence and innovation, and a lame defence of a failed status quo which he identified with reactionary public sector unions, bureaucratic inertia and a fear of risk. He also targeted John Crothers and me as the root cause of the problem. He described us as, in effect, stuck at home watching Blue Peter on a black and white telly and being served Marmite sandwiches by our depressed wives while giving our children a Chinese burn for using their mobiles at the table. (laughs) Sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. Word for word. Yeah, yeah. He claimed, in contrast, the Blair inheritance, which he rightly identified with supporting Arsenal Football Club and secondarily as embracing embracing the challenges and possibilities of globalisation within a progressive ideology best summed up by the song, Things Can Only Get Better. Our sense of loss was perceived as nostalgia, our solidarity as a resistance to the necessary demands of globalisation, and our concern that all should participate in politics, the economy and society as a cowardly retreat from the intense challenges that need to be faced. Teddy, not Franklin Roosevelt, was the way to go. 
It is also appropriate that this debate tonight should take place here at the LSE because it concerns a central issue in the social sciences concerning the essential elements of modernity within an economic era characterised by globalisation. There are those, and I think Michael Gove is clearly on this side of the debate, although, yeah, I think you are, who argue that there are two dominant institutions in the modern society, the market and the state, and the market should be sovereign in the economy and the state in politics. A price-setting market and the rule of law defines modernity and is the road to liberty and prosperity. The political choices are stark in this vision of modernity, sink or swim, adapt or die, the past or the future, open or closed societies, innovation or stagnation, optimism or nostalgia, the market or the state. I take all of these examples from Michael Gove's Politeia speech given a few months ago. Now, I hate to raise the spectre of the big society um, that was supposed to define the orientation and direction of this liberal-led coalition. But the remarkable thing is that there is no conception of society at all in Mr. Gove's conception of modernity. The past is a drag on modernisation, unions hinder innovation, vocation impedes aspiration, and tradition must be constrained within Max Weber's iron cage of modernisation by managerial prerogative and the maximisation of returns in the public and private sectors. And then there are those on my side of the fence who argued that the assumptions of this kind of globalised modernisation theory are mistaken in, that, in their proposition that the greatest degree of market penetration and organisation is the only or even the best way of assimilating changes in technology, information and practice in a global economy. That there is something wrong about an exclusive stress on transferable skills, in the rejection of institutional mediation and above all in the invisibility of tradition, inherited practice and vocation in the constitution of modernity. Our argument, in contrast, is that these things don't matter less but matter more in a high-value-added skilled economy that wishes to be competitive in a global economy. We have known for decades that there would be a knowledge economy. Our mistake, and it was shared between both parties, was to think that academics had all the knowledge, when a brief conversation with any of us would indicate that that is far from the case. There was a contempt for labour and labour traditions as the carriers of value, of knowledge and of skill. We thought that people who read books knew more than people who worked with others and did things. We still do, and that needs to change. The fundamental counterexample that is put forward by, and it's a technical term, mediated globalisation theorists, of which I'm one, the counterexample is Germany. We ask those on Michael Gove's side of the argument to explain how the country with the greatest degree of worker representation in its corporate governance structure, the greatest degree of vocational regulation of labour market entry through the enforcement of apprenticeships as a condition of being able to practice a trade, with the greatest constraints on capital through its system of regional and sectoral banks that are not allowed to lend outside of a defined geographical location or specialism, as well as a pension system that is administered on parity terms between capital and labour, all working within a federal structure with strong city government, should have the most successful economy in Europe. From the point of view of liberal or third-way modernisation theory, it simply makes no sense at all. The overwhelming lesson of Thatcherism, which has been much on our mind lately, and the hardest to face, is that Germany won. We have a Champions League final next week between two supporter-owned and democratically governed football clubs, this may be good news for the world, but I'm certainly not cheering. 
neither liberal nor Keynesian economic theory, just to let you know that I'm not letting my own side off entirely, neither liberal nor Keynesian economic theory can explain this because neither has any concept of tradition, institutions, firms, vocations, or any intermediate structures between the individual and the collective, or the market and the state. Neither has any conception of society. That is why the labour tradition, and One Nation Labour as an expression of that, places its innovation theory, its idea of an innovation nation, within a framework of decentralised institutions which maintain the role for tradition, good practice and ethos in navigating an effective response to the demands of globalisation. You cannot innovate out of nothing. There is always pre-existing matter and knowledge that is transformed by the innovation. It is precisely the wisdom of the conservative tradition that we are trying to embrace through one nation, that revolutionary change cannot understand the continuity of things through time, the constant balance between change and continuity, and that not everything can be put into doubt simultaneously. This leads to the insight that an inheritance is necessary for the future, that tradition is necessary for innovation. It is this insight that has been lost to conservatives since Thatcher. And Michael Gove's vision of modernity is one of relentless change, with no institutional mediation in either understanding, shaping or constraining it. It is for this reason that we embrace a politics of paradox, where quality and equality, virtuous elites and a renewed democracy, tradition and innovation, the past and the future, are understood as complementary, not as opposed concepts. We have to be open and closed, and a balance between them is the task of statecraft. So the concept doing all the work in Michael Gove's definition of modernity, at least in what I've read, is that of the open society. The problem is that this vision of the open society has no institutions in it other than the state and the price-setting market. Society, in contrast to the market, is characterised by robust institutions and closure. In other words, society is always open and closed. The problem with the open society tradition is not the ideal It is vital to be engaged with the world and to be open to correction. It is the conflation of the open society with an open market. Those societies with the strongest vocational, financial and knowledge institutions that resist market domination in knowledge, capital and labour markets are most able to effectively compete in international markets on the basis of value added. What we witnessed in the crash of 2008 and I think that the party that can give the most compelling account of its causes and how to avoid their repetition will win the next election, was a market without moral institutions or any balance of power, and the result was, unsurprisingly, a degree of unconstrained greed that led to exaggeration, deceit and ruin. Sounds a bit like the RAF or whatever the academic exercise is. There were precious few constraints on innovation and risk-taking in the City of London in 2007, and we could no longer tell the difference between good and bad forms. It was a failure of an overly centralised state, but also an overly centralised financial system. It was a failure of leadership and of accountability, but it was also an institutional failure on a grand scale that spoke of excessive centralisation in the market and the state. The shared institutional ecology that can nourish competitive markets and a balance of interests that can constrain arrogance and deceit within the firm through relational accountability are the most important things to understand, and it doesn't help if your position denies that such things should exist. The irony of Michael Gove's position is that he has to intensify and centralise state power still further in order to generate educational renewal. It is like a form of permanent revolution, 
an inane and insane corporate Maoism in which everything must be made anew all the time out of nothing. It's to be remembered that Maoism was also hostile to political interference with the popular will of reactionary and conservative elements that blocked progress. The doctrine of permanent revolution is not only epistemologically void and morally treacherous, it is also a practical failure. It is, however, or seems to be, the guiding philosophy of this liberal-led government, and no good can come of it. What is needed, in contrast, is a politics of the common good, and this is the meaning of one-nation labour, in which labour value is honoured as a necessary part of the life of the nation. It is about the redistribution of power and the negotiation of a common good between people with conflicting interests that can be reconciled. Let's take educational reform, for example. I agree that Labour's educational reforms, while good in places, did not go far enough. Where I disagree is that no single interest should dominate in the new reformed institutions. Under the old system, the funder, whether the local authority or the state, was the sovereign power in determining school policy. Under Michael Gove's free school initiative, it is the parents. What we would advocate is a common good between funders, parents and teachers. We agree with Michael Gove when he says that, quote, the quality of teaching and the prestige of the teaching profession is the single most important factor in driving up educational standards. Status, however, is not an abstract concept, but a position with power and responsibility. The proletarianisation of the teaching profession is the work of many governments, and there have been times when the teaching unions have been complicit with this, and it needs to be reversed. The vocational honour of teachers needs to be strengthened and not diminished, and established as a significant but not dominant force in the governance structure. Estelle Morris's suggestion of establishing a Royal College of Teaching is an excellent one. No responsibility without power should be the guiding principle of public sector reform, and there is no avoiding the necessity that labour is a constitutive part of quality and equality, delivery and design. In one nation, each of the interests need to organise themselves and be represented. The shared inheritance of Marxism and liberalism, and I know that Michael Gove has been both, and I don't think there's much difference between them, is that there per- is the permanent renunciation of decentralised Democrats as utopian and nostalgic since 1848. Jesse Norman, in his new book on Burke, takes a different view. In contrast, tradition and the preservation of institutional virtue are a source of energy and modernisation, precisely because we recognise that change and continuity work together that a balance of power is the best system, that a negotiated settlement is better than one that is imposed, that the domination of any interest violates the demands of what is good, and the discovery of the common good between forces that are estranged is the best good of all. It takes longer to get there, but the benefits are more enduring. Disraeli defined one nation as the maintenance of the institutions of the realm and the elevation of the conditions of the people. It remains a noble description of the vocation of politics. We need to renew, not subordinate our institutions, such as our great universities, of which this is one, our parliament, our city (coughs) governments, and professional associations, and extend them into the working life of the nation. One nation assumes the plurality and diversity of existing interests and traditions and seeks to reconcile them in pursuit of the common good through a societal purpose that gives incentives to virtue. It conceives of this in reconciling the societal divisions that liberalism denies exists between capital and labour, between immigrants and locals, between Christians and Muslims, between religious and secular, between rich and poor, between north and south. 
the elevation of the conditions of the people is not only material, although that is vital, and the living wage, which I worked on here at the LSE, that was a very long and difficult campaign, it got broken when we discovered in the founding documents a commitment to the living wage, and that kind of swung the balance. But although that is vital, and the living wage, the regional banks, the cap on interest rates, and the establishments of vocational colleges all address that, but it is also a need to respect the dignity of labour, its centrality in the generation of wealth, the partnership with people in fulfilling their obligations to their loved ones, and an understanding of the humiliation and grief that people feel when they cannot. One Nation stresses work, enterprise and participation, a genuine status for workers and users in the governments of the institutions that have power over them and the respect for their complexity, tensions and constraints. Earning and belonging are the organising principles. Such a vision is very different from the one proposed by this government or the last Labour government, both of which are characterised by contempt for tradition, a belief in managerial prerogative and the domination of a single interest in the name of efficiency. One Nation Labour is offering a future that is significantly different and better. There could be interesting times ahead. Thank you. Benjamin Disraeli, of course, began um, the One Nation tradition by pointing out that there were two nations in England at the time between whom there was neither communion nor understanding. Um, And I think more than 150 years later, there probably are two nations in England now between whom there is neither communion nor understanding. Uh, The hundreds of us here, or the hundred or so of us here, uh, gathered to discuss political philosophy and the relevance of uh, Victorian and 20th century political thinkers. And the millions outside watching Chelsea play Benfica um, in the final of the Europa Cup. Um, but I'm glad that I'm part of this nation um, for the uh, duration of this evening, and obviously disappointed along with Morris that uh, Tottenham Hotspur are not playing a bigger role in European football, but all will be decided shortly. Um, but I just wanted to emphasise my debt to, uh, to Morris in, in many ways. Um, the first thing uh, that I should say is that this is not the first time that Morris and I have shared a platform. Both of us spoke together at an event that was organised in my constituency. Those of you who are familiar with Surrey Heath will know that it's one of the plushest and um, uh, wealthiest constituencies in England. Um, it has uh, the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, Stockbroker Belt Villages, and of course the town of Camberley, immortalised by uh, John Betjeman in his poem about Miss Joan Hunter Dunn. Um, and Morris and I met in the incongruous surroundings of the Camberley Working Men's Club. Um, if you can imagine an institution that sums up Blue Labour, a working men's club in Camberley would probably be. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Morris, as ever, uh, wowed the audience that night and, and won the debate. But despite having been um, used to, uh, to wipe the floor by Morris on that occasion, I wanted to come back for more because he's a spellbinding speaker, one of the most interesting people uh, 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 that one can listen to or read in uh, British political thoughts today, and constantly challenging. And he's challenged all of us this evening to rethink what we understand, both by one nation, but also what we understand by the current political choice between uh, the coalition, the conservative element in it, and Labour under Ed Miliband. And one of the things that I must say about Labour under Ed Miliband is that whatever criticisms we might issue, one of the great things that Ed Miliband has done is that he has welcomed 
uh, uh, genuine intellectual thought rather than simply uh, arid exercises in political positioning as part of his policy review. Um, and of course it will be the case that, as Morris points out, in the six months before the general election, um, I will grow fangs, hair on the back of my hands, um, and I will attempt to uh, become a, uh, a ravening political combatant as I attempt to take Labour policy apart. But we're not there yet, so what I can do is, um, <laughs> is genuinely admire the intellectual openness and the, the work that's being done by Morris, by John Carlos, the writings of John Harris, um, and others who are contributing to the blue Labour tradition. Um, one nation, of course, it doesn't belong to any party. Um, uh, no political tradition is the exclusive property of any political party. One nation didn't really start, actually, with Disraeli. Prior to that, there was a tradition, broadly on the right, but not completely on the right of British politics, that privileged, as Morris does, intermediary institutions, inherited wisdom, the provinces over the centre. The old country party, often associated with the Tories, was the, the One Nation Party. And the court party, generally associated with the Whigs, was the mechanistic, modernising, literal-minded uh, party of financial institutions and uh, 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 you know, the elite. Um, and, of course, that One Nation tradition was something that Disraeli attempted to draw. One of his favourite thinkers was the now utterly neglected um, Henry St. John, Viscount Bolingbroke. Um, and it's also the case that there was a Tory radical tradition, even before um, uh, Disraeli, which hated the corruption of the metropolis and celebrated tradition as a way of actually celebrating um, uh, the, the lives of uh, the unregarded mass. And I suppose William Cobbett was probably one of the best examples of that, a journalist who's furious in his denunciation of the corruption at the centre, but regarded himself very much as a traditionalist. So there was a one-nation Tory tradition, but I think it's very historically rooted. And I think the relevance today depends less on that tradition as it was at the time, and more on how we interpret how that tradition has been used subsequently. Because one nation in, in Tory conversation has been used to signal those Conservatives and those on the centre-right who believe that social cohesion is a critical value of importance, who believe that, um, in, in mild contrast to the depiction that, that Morris gave, that it's really important, if you are on the centre-right, to have a care about how equal or unequal your society is. One of my colleagues, Greg Clark, got it in the neck when we were in opposition for praising Polly Toynbee. But he was right, because Polly has used the metaphor of the caravan travelling through the desert. And you want that caravan to allow the head and the tail, as it were, to stay in touch. And he said that was an important metaphor for society. Conservatives accept inequality. We recognise that for a variety of reasons, uh, you could not have, and indeed it would be intolerable to impose a society where you had absolute equality in every area. But that doesn't mean that we regard inequality as uh, worthwhile or a virtue or, in all circumstances, a price worth paying. And the one-nation tradition in conservative thinking throughout the 20th and the 21st century is the tradition that believes that um, no child should be left behind, that we cannot have a society that becomes more stratified and segregated over time. And the challenge for the one-nation tradition in the Conservative Party now is uh, exactly, as Morris pointed out, globalisation and its impact. Because if you believe, and I do, in an open society, if you believe that globalisation is something 
from which we cannot shield ourselves by setting up protectionist uh, barriers or saying no to all inward migration, then you have to accept that globalization brings challenges and innovation, but also problems. So one of the good things about globalization is that it ensures that our industry remains competitive. It ensures that our uh, institutions of higher education benefit from a range of different voices and perspectives. It ensures that our society benefits from uh, the presence here of the talented and the innovative. But at the same time, we've all got to recognise that globalisation is making, unmediated, our society less equal. So we all know that migratory flows, not least from Eastern Europe, depress wages. That's one of the reasons why the living wage that Morris has pioneered has such purchase. Because we know that uh, uh, migratory changes have depressed in some trades, in some areas of our country, the price that labour can command. We also know that globalisation has meant that uh, what economists call the return to skills has become a, a much more dominant feature in how people are rewarded. We all know that over the last 20 or 30 years, essentially the more highly qualified you are, the more you will earn relative to others, and that the gap's been growing. So, in the 1950s, in the era in which I mentally uh, picture Morris uh, munching his Marmite sandwich, <laughs> waiting for the arrival of Stan Perryman, in that era... <laughs> Steve Perryman. Steve Perryman, yeah, yeah. Um, um, in, in, that, in that era, um, the, uh, the gap between the, uh, the wages that uh, university-educated professionals would enjoy in most areas... Um, and those which uh, uh, the skilled working class would enjoy, was not huge. Now, there's been a significant gulf. And it's also the case that on top of uh, the, the sort of professional classes, there's now what's been called a superclass, often those who work in financial services in the City of London, those who are globally footloose, often those with qualifications in, in mathematics and, uh, and physics and other subjects, the quants, as it were, uh, who can command massive salaries. Now, these are, are forces from which we can't insulate ourselves entirely, forces which Morris has been eloquent in analysing. And I believe that the forces which we, on the right, can't ignore either. We can't say that simply having an open market economy and a, and a completely open society, virtuous as though they are, are enough. There needs to be action led by the state, empowering others, to attempt to deal with these forces which would otherwise make our society less equal. Now, you might say, well, you're a Tory and you describe yourself as someone who's in favour of openness and all the rest of it. You know, you're hawking your conscience around here. But why is it a problem? From your point of view, Gove, if society does become you know, more unequal, you know, provided everyone you know, gets their just desserts, a meritocrat like you should be happy. Well, actually, I think that uh, there are two reasons why, for people in the centre right, it's profoundly wrong. One is that it's in the nature of globalisation to mean that other countries, because they change their education systems, both academic and vocational, are getting more people educated to a higher level and therefore are capable of generating more wealth for all their people. So if you're heartless but concerned about national efficiency, it is inefficient to have people who are not trained to a higher level, who are not educated or not capable of taking their place in the workforce and in your society. And in fact, the more people who are educated to a higher level, the denser the networks of creativity and ingenuity the more your society will benefit. But there's another reason as well. If you are on the centre-right, then, and it's not exclusive to the centre-right, but if you are on the centre-right, you believe in the worth of every individual. You recognise, whether you, because you come from a Judeo-Christian tradition or 
even if you're a utilitarian and you've got no faith, that individuals matter. And if you find individuals are not in a position where their skills and their talents are capable of being used for the common good, then that is uh, a moral, genuinely moral challenge to the society which you're part of. So for that reason, both because of economic efficiency and also because the morality of respecting each individual in their own right as worthy of respect, you've got to be concerned about inequality. You've got to be one nation. So what are we doing about it? Well, Morris mentioned that uh, uh, the education reforms uh, which we are uh, introducing are controversial. Of course they are. But there are certain strands in those education reforms which are informed by a desire to deal with the problem that we have. Um, Britain is, uh, England actually in particular, is one of the most in- unequal countries when it comes to educational attainment in the developed world. The gap between the educational attainment of uh, uh, those who go to the best schools, overwhelmingly of course those who come from the wealthiest homes, and those from the poorest backgrounds is massive. And in fact our education system, far from uh, in the past, reducing inequality, exacerbated it. Think about it for a second. We all know that things are unequal in the state of nature, but if the state itself and its agencies are spending billions trying to help our young people, then surely some of the innate advantages that the wealthy enjoy will be eroded over time. Far from it. It's actually the case that if you, if you track children through every stage of their education, at the end of key stage one, when they're seven, at the end of key stage two, when they're 11 and so on, the gap has grown wider over time. So what do we do about it? Well, our education reforms, um, and, and, and here I have to disagree with Morris, are informed by a desire to empower civil society and to recognise the importance of uh, the vocational, both teaching as a vocation and also different paths to success in education. The free schools that Morris talks about are increasingly being established by parents and teachers in partnership together. And a growing number of them are being set up by teachers who recognise that setting up a free school is a means to advance a social mission. If you've been a a lawyer in the past and you wanted to help the very poorest, you could set up a law centre or establish a practice in one of the toughest areas of this country. If you were a GP and you had a social mission to bring improved healthcare to the poor, you could establish your practice in an area of genuine deprivation. If you were a teacher and you wanted to open a school in order to pioneer ways of raising the attainment of children who were poorer, you couldn't do so before free schools were established. And now you have genuine radicals, like Peter Hyman, who are taking the opportunity to establish free schools in areas like the East End of London, Newham in particular, where there's been historic underachievement because they want to ensure that their vocation, their calling to teaching, can find an expression in an area where their talents contribute most radically to social justice. And in the same way as the free school movement is empowering teachers, so our academy's programme is about empowering teachers as well. It's about the state stepping back, individual head teachers and the leadership teams deciding the curricula that they want to uh, uh, adopt and the relationships that they want to have. And what's striking about, and I'll admit it, a smaller role for local authorities is that actually there are more intermediary or middle-tier institutions evolving as schools work together. Academy chains, teaching school alliances, federations are replacing the, uh, 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 the role that local authorities used to play. 
And in that sense, I actually think that Morris, after a period of reflection, will probably welcome this trend, because in fact, it's the reinvigoration of civil society and the empowerment of professionals, rather than the desk-bound bureaucrats in many uh, uh, local government uh, town halls, who were increasingly disempowered, because they were increasingly becoming the agents of central government, under both Conservative yeah. and Labour, implementing the policies that we insisted on through the Audit Commission or, or any other intermediary body. It's also the case as well that um, even though there are people within the teaching unions who have a range of views about the reforms <laughs> that we're making, it's also the case that increasingly teachers are making themselves heard in the debate about our reforms, pro and anti, and individual teachers and groups of teachers are, are shaping the debate. Those of you who follow the education debate will know that on the blogosphere it's often the case that there are teachers like um, uh, Andrew Old um, or uh, Tom Bennett who are actually the most articulate and effective supporters of some of the things that, uh, that we're doing, far more effective and articulate than I am. But it's also the case that there are organisations like the Head Teachers Roundtable and the, and the Local Schools Network that are much more effective and pointed critics than many of the unions because they use a rapier whereas the unions tend to use a, a blunderbuss. So... I'm glad, delighted in fact, that the debate about education is giving a greater role for those who feel that sense of vocation. One other thing about the vocational, um, I do think that Morris is right, that vocational education has been neglected in this country, and it's not for want of trying on the part of politicians, but I think part of the problem has been that most politicians, and I think Morris has a very powerful point here, have come themselves come from academic backgrounds. And in fact, most of the people who write and talk about education, by definition, come from academic backgrounds. So over time, people have thought that the way to celebrate vocational education is to try to dress it up as though it were quasi-academic. And that's meant that we've had a hollowing out of some vocational qualifications because they've basically become an applied or uh, simplified version of academic qualifications. And what we haven't had is the emphasis on the, uh, the acquisition of proper craft and technical skills which the best apprenticeships offer and which, thanks to the Wolf reforms and the growth of university technical colleges and studio schools, we're seeing a revival. Can we do more? Of course we can. Will we have got everything right in this area? Absolutely not. But I do think that Morris has been prescient in arguing that there should be a renovation of vocational education, and we're responding to it, however um, uh, imperfectly, um, with enthusiasm. The final thing that I just wanted to say is that Morris also made the point that um, one of the key insights of Blue Labour, and indeed One Nation, is that you need to renovate institutions. One of the great things about Disraeli is that he recognised that institutions which, um, uh, when he was a boy, were laughingstocks, like the monarchy, could be revived and provide people with a satisfying and, uh, focus for uh, uh, an emotional sense of national unity at a time of wrenching change. Well, I think it's important that we recognise that there are institutions that we need to renovate and support as well. Parliament, stronger now than it has been throughout my adult lifetime, thanks to an assertive speaker, increasingly assertive, and don't I know it, backbenchers, um, uh, and, and also uh, improved scrutiny on the part of the media following you know, freedom of information, expenses and all the rest of it. But also the family. I think one of the, uh, the things that uh, uh, my colleague Ian Duncan-Smith has very successfully done is to ask the question, to what extent do we need to support intermediate institutions in order to deal with poverty? Yes, the state has a role in redistribution. Yes, the market has a role in helping to provide work. But we also need to consider what sorts of virtues are passed on in the family, 
How can we support the family in various different forms to pass on these virtues to others? And how can we support those institutions which go with the grain of, of virtue and commitment, um, our grit and persistence? Those elements in character, which Tories, with their respect for human nature, believe are important in promoting um, a sense of uh, greater social cohesion and social justice. So I suppose I should end by saying that Morris's brilliant caricature of me um, was uh, rhetorically incredibly impressive um, and had a number of palpable hits. But I hope you'll realise that also, even though it may pain him to acknowledge it, that Morris and I, not in every area, but in a number of areas, um, while we may not be kissing cousins, are certainly part of the same extended modern family unit. Exactly 20 minutes. We have 25 minutes. We, we have uh, Emma. Where's Emma? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, Emma's, Emma's our Twitter guru and will produce some Twitter questions in a moment. But we want some from here as well. I have a complicated internal system for choosing people. It's very, the, 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 the technique is very complex. But I will select people. And what I'd ask you to do is begin to catch my eyes. That gentleman is cleverly done using up that space. I don't know if there's anybody in here that might want a question. Uh, we have one here. And we want a third over here, this gentleman here. So we've got these three. Uh, and I want you to say who you are. I want you to be extremely short. Remember, a sort of ramble with respect uses up valuable time. I say rambling. And then we'll go for quick replies. I'm going to be really quite insistent on quick. We'll get to Twitter and we'll get another round. And the theme is One Nation. Uh, sir, kick us off with your name and your quick uh, remark or question. Clément Pellier from the Master of Public Affairs. So I was thinking about this open society concept, and uh, as you were speaking, I couldn't help but think that if the project is to have an open one, it must have been closed before. So my question is, to, who, to whom was it closed and why? Thank you very much. A model of the sort of intervention we're after. I think right here, uh, beside Father Jim, uh, just introduce yourself. Uh, Did you want to ask a question? No. Yes, I did want to ask a question. Yes. Sorry, I thought um, you got my eye. Sorry? Go on. Yes, I'm Fiona Miller, and thank you for the name check for the Local <coughs> Schools Network and your speech, Michael. Um, I've, I've got two very quick questions. First is, is there any room for women in One Nation? Because it feels like a very blokish affair to me, apart from a passing reference to Margaret Thatcher and Polly Tyne being a train. Um, and the, obviously the platform is all made up of men. But my other point was about the centralisation of powers, because in 19, before 1988, the Secretary of State for Education had three powers of direction over schools. In 1988, he, and it was a he, was given 200 powers of, of direction. And you, another bloke, now have 2,000 powers of direction over schools. So in fact, all the talk about autonomy and devolution of power, what's happened has been a massive power grab to the centre over both Labour and the Conservative governments. And I wondered how, and I know you're going to say that academies and so on are autonomous schools, but in fact they're all personally contracted to you. So in fact it isn't really de devolution of power. And I wonder which government will have the confidence actually to give power back to local communities, real power, not pretend power. And as you hand back the market, you might just say who you are other than just the ordinary. Yeah, so I did, I said I'm, I'm from the local schools oh, network, because we started yeah. the local schools Thank network, you. which Michael very kindly name-checked in his speech. And I, I'm a school governor as well, I'm a parent. Uh, and we have the third person over here. Hello, uh, Jack Tindall. I'm a sabbatical officer at the Students' Union for my sins. Um, I'd be interested to know 
And I think what I was getting from your speech that we tend to have dividing lines in British politics. You know, the, the Secretary of State mentioned that we used to have, you know, the Whigs versus the Tories. That's now develop, that developed over time into Keynesian versus Friedmanites. Do we now have liberal conservatives, neoliberals, and is there now a policy vacuum that one nation has to now fit into? Always the dividing line now, what one nation is itself. I'd be interested to know if you see that's the dividing line, or is one nation just an ideology that can stand up without division? Uh, thanks, Jack. I'm going to call Morris first, if I may, and I'm going to remind you both to be as brief as you possibly can be. Yeah. Um, so first of all, in terms of open and, open and closed, I mean, the, the thing is, is the open conception is obviously better. You know, you, you know, I think it's a general assumption it's better to be open and closed. My point is, is that it's a bit mad to think that you can be entirely, I mean, you mentioned it in your talk, the idea of complete openness leads to emptiness. And then you've got the further thing, which is that it turns out that those, those institutions, and it's the decentralised institutions, it comes back to, to what Fiona Miller was saying, that the decentralised institutions turned out to be much better than the state or the market at preserving patterns of knowledge, tradition, and the matter through which you can begin to innovate. So, you know, the, the classic example would be a, a university like this. A university like this is a very elite university. It's, it's got traditions and practices. It has to be open to changes in knowledge. So who's it open to? It's open to other people of the same category of status. So this is the thing that a freedom and a free society also has to engage with the content of status. So, so my point... Um, which is complicated but really not that difficult, I think, in the end, is, is that in order to be successfully open, you have to have closure. You have to have forms of traditions and practices that actually mediate and can translate. The ex it's the distinction between knowledge and information. So we're just bombarded with a whole load of information all the time. Without a tradition of knowledge which can select what is and is not important in that, you're done. So that's just a, a beginning of, of, of an answer. Um, in, in relation to, if you admit, I, I agree, we've got to go much, much further in the decentralisation of the corporate governance. This is the point at issue. And I completely take your point about Peter Hyman and, and the setting up of the schools. And as you know, I've, 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 I've said that I really support this decentralisation of, of power. What I want to see is a corporate governance of this, you know, my wife calls it a third, a third, a third. You know, it's a third, a third, a third in the government structure. I'm sorry, Connor, that I was just, you know, quoting, yeah. quoting from the family table there. And she goes, oh, oh, my God, it's the third, a third, a third again. So here we go. Um, it's the idea that in any institution, and education is one, I would like this for hospitals too, I would like this in all manner, there's three analytical components that must constitute the institution. There's the workforce, there's the users, and there's the funders. I would like to see those three represented in the negotiation of the governance, so that it's not just initiatives of certain teachers, and I absolutely welcome that honouring of the vocation that can go on there, but that the vocation is recognised in each school. So the teachers have to be organised, the parents have to be organised, and the funders, because the state also has legitimate interests. I would hate to see you announce that. In the integration of policy <coughs> in, in, in objectives related to social justice. And very briefly, the last one. Should we hand it over to Mike? I, th I think I've yeah, spoken let, enough. Let's say... Uh, um, on, the, uh, on the question of um, uh, open and closed, um, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a, um, a prior bias, but I do recognise that um, there, there will be uh, certain nations and certain cultures and certain institutions which, by definition, by being closed, have, have preserved certain virtues. Um, and certainly, if you think about um, uh, the licence to practice, 
which mm -hmm. an apprenticeship confers, the fact that there can be, you, you, it can become ossified through you know, creating a, a guild, but it can certainly be the case that um, it's a recognition that you've achieved something worthwhile. So sometimes there can be institutions that should be uh, not open to all comers. No, I do accept that. On, on Fiona's uh, challenge, uh, uh, about women, yes. I and mean, I've often been criticised in the past because I, I like history, so therefore I look backwards. I look backwards to a less enlightened time for examples. And you're quite right that there are uh, more than enough examples of uh, women who can... Uh, uh, demonstrate the virtues or the vices that any of us might want to talk about. Our new history curriculum, for example, has a role for Annie Besant, who uh, played a critical role in uh, the, uh, the Match Girl Strike, and also mm. uh, for um, like Christina Rossetti as a far more interesting figure than her wasteful um, uh, relations. But you're absolutely right that we should... Ellen the Mark. Exactly. Is she in? No, but, we'll, right. but we, we will we, change we, that we now. We need to... Okay. Fair point. Uh, you, the, the, the critical thing is, it doesn't matter how many theoretical powers or real powers I have, it's how it feels on the ground. And for me, the test is, are uh, our teachers, and in particular those who run schools, notwithstanding our point about governance structure, do they feel that they can change more than they, they were able to in the past? And on the final point about um, where are the dividing lines, I don't know yet. Excellent. Then Cross will tell that's, that's the kind of thing. <laughs> we'll absorb that. Emma, can we have some Twitter? Uh, we'll do this very quickly. Uh, we are committed to innovation at the LSE IPA, and uh, we're going to demonstrate that by beaming, in a dramatic fashion, three questions. You will absorb them. They are relatively gender-free. We're not quite sure. No, they reveal themselves. Uh, can we take these in no particular order? Start with you, Michael, and then Morris, and then we'll have another round. I want this... Quickly, so we can get another round before we break. We have to finish at five minutes tonight. Mike, first. On oh, these three? These three. Uh, what does Morris think of today's article in the Sun? Uh, um, well, I think we we'll skipped that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, I, I think anyone who gave an article in the Sun is stupid. Will the next lecture be one on the appeal of ideology on the strength of the Why did you do that one? Yeah. Um, Crivens. Um, I hope this will be one on the strength of policy. Um, I think that um, uh, I'd like to think I know that people won't judge policy by policy. You know, when I used to work on the Times, we had a, in the 97 election, we had a page on the party's education policies. And I'd like to think that the, the rational voter looked at those and thought, yes, yes, I'll give Labour 7 out of 10, and the Tories only 6. And then, oh, but on agriculture, I'll give the uh, uh, Tories 8 and Labour only 4, then added them all up. And then said, ah, <laughs> oh, yes, no, I think, I think Blair edges it. Um, of course, no one thinks like that, but I do hope that people will look both at what the coalition's achieved and also at the alternative prospectus and engage with the policies. Do, but you, then, do, you, do you think that negotiating with Europe with the promise to have a referendum is a yes. policy winner? Um, I think that... <laughs> huge question. Um, uh, uh, yes, is the short answer. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Morris, <laughs> there's two... There's two uh, there's some we can deal with briefly. We don't want you to yeah. be too... Delighted. I got a nice text from Peter Madison who said, you know, we spent £5 million getting the endorsement of the Sun and you did it smoking on the terrace of the House of Lords. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so I went and had a cup of coffee and a cigarette. That's, how I, that's what I think. Broadly, and I think it'd be fair to say the Sun backed your version of Blue Labour. Is that what it was about? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and then so, what about, what about the second, the third of them? The third one, Glassman. How do you respond to the view one nation politics is built on a vulgar patrician caricature of working class <laughs> concerns? <laughs> I, 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 would, I would say that this is a postgraduate political theory student, and that's what I would say, um, um, who hasn't yet had a job. And, um, 
I'm not going to... I don't know. Um, now, on the other one, will the next election be one... Now, I think this is the really... If, if, if there is any way that the next election can be fought um, in this way, where there, there can be a recognition of the issues facing the country, the, 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 the widening inequality, the exclusions of people, the, the coarsening of family life and the problems relating to that, how, how to elevate the conditions of the people. And then Labour can, can, can make a serious argument relating to that the problem with the apprenticeship is that it doesn't regulate labour market entry. I would like to see, you know, in 1834, the, would you know, the professions kept their guild status, wow. but the workers were screwed. You know, wow. so the carpenters, I would like to see the extension of a vocational status that regulates labour market entry. So in answer, it, some idea, I think a historical narrative... A notion of, of um, ideological differences, honouring of labour, and, and those things, but w but within a framework where we're still basically um, members of the same society with, mm. with common concerns, uh, that would be a turn up for the book. Good stuff. We have time. We have this lady. We have a gentleman whose hand is now up and a pullover, and we have this lady here. We take these three. Sorry, I had to leave people out, but we see how quick they are. Your name and a question or observation, plus who you are. Okay, Georgina Singer, um, King's College London. Uh, Mr. Gove, you've spoken very eloquently about the free schools, but I'm wondering how the question of for-profit free schools fits in with your one-nation argument. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. And now you can take this lady here, who's third row, and then the gentleman whose hand is still up. Keep your hand up. Yeah. Uh, I'm Saskia Sassen from Columbia University in New York. Hi. I speak as a foreigner, but I think I'm allowed. No? Uh, uh, yes, we now, one, one nation. <laughs> Why the choice of one nation? It isn't fiction. We know that. Historical demography shows that we're very mixed peoples. Mm. I'm Dutch, you know, the Dutch. The British may be a bit less, but still. Mm. Why that language is my question. Thank you very much. And finally, the chat's hand is still up, and this is the third in this round, with apologies to those who had their hands up here. Yes, Hi. sir. Uh, uh, my name's Lewis, and I'm a school governor. I just wanted to ask, uh, is there a danger? I mean, we're all academics or politicos are interested in politics. But is there a danger on a doorstep at the next election, people going, what's, what is this new Labour, sorry, new Labour, one Labour uh, concept, uh, uh, one nation even, and will it, well done. <laughs> will it suffer from the same problems that the big society uh, suffered, and what ways could you go around, get around? Okay, that was very clever, Lewis, demonstrating how vacuous it was by getting it wrong twice. <laughs> <laughs> right, can we take it first on these? Yes, things? absolutely. Or um, on, yes. On, on, on free schools uh, for profit, one of the great things about free schools as things stand is that they're, 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 they're philanthropic um, enterprises, and I think that's a good thing, um, and I think that uh, it, it, it's essential uh, to preserve that. Um, I think on uh, Saskia's point about One Nation, one of the things that I think is a, a good thing is the irony that uh, uh, the, the, the inventor of One Nation politics was someone who themselves came from, um, through their father and grandfather, um, from a non-traditional English uh, background. And I think one of the great things... Jewish. Hmm? Jewish. 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 Yeah. But, but then <laughs> One of the reasons why the problem was so great and King John was so bad, you know, there have been Jewish people in Britain from millennia. Um, however... Um, uh, the where was I? Yes, yeah. Bring, uh, one nation. The, the whole point is that it stresses that uh, you can be British, British, I suppose, more than English, um, or whatever your ethnic or cultural background. If you buy into a certain, uh, 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 but uh, yeah, you, you, you believe in being decent people, exactly. 
Um, and then um, in, in, in Lewis's point about um, the organising concept, I think it's perfectly possible, people often make this point, it's perfectly possible for um, uh, a politician or his advisors or gurus to have a complex organising concept, a big idea, which doesn't immediately translate into a retail offer on the doorstep. And it was the case for the sake of argument, and you can argue that it was a disaster or uh, uh, a triumph, that Margaret Thatcher believed in the work of Keynes and Hayek. But there's no way in which when uh, people were trying to sell the virtue of buying your own council house that they would have said, uh, if you read the Constitution of Liberty, or indeed if you go back to Locke, you'll understand that this uh, uh, wider uh, dispersal property will underpin liberty. You know, there, are, there are ways in which you can have an organising idea about what the good society is, and then, if it's coherent, you're actually in a better position to judge the ideas that come along from your friends and colleagues as worthwhile or with integrity or worth pursuing. Thank you. Morris, briefly, I'm going to get one or two in. This gentleman is very keen to get in. A lot of you are very keen to get Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll skip the first. I'll just do the, the, the second two. In terms of Saskia, yeah. there's a very particular story. I think it is an English story, mm-hmm. in fact. Where, where it's, it's a completely Mongol nation and um, the conquest, there was the Roman, there was the Norman and yet there is this intensity of these common institutions, parliament, the common law. It's a very particular story of, of people from all over the world coming. It's a very different story to America, it has to be said, in terms of its institutional form. So the fact that the language is so synthetic, the language is made up of so many... So it's this combination, the constant paradoxical combination of diversity and common institutions. So the one nation implies already the existence of the plurality. So what are we to make of how to generate solidarity under these conditions of globalisation, which are extremely demanding? So there needs to be... a. so this, is, this goes into the deep political argument, a resistance to the politics, for example, of multiculturalism, which divides people and doesn't allow a reconciliation of interests towards this conciliation. And that's the, that's the logic of it. And in terms of Lewis, he said he, we spend all our time, you know, it's a hard life thinking about this. So, you know, on, on social care, helping you help your mum. You know, just working it through, how to build a partnership with people, welfare, don't give, don't get. You know, these, these issues where, where you can articulate it in four or five words that actually resonate with people, that's an enormous part of political rhetoric, which is an extremely important part of the tradition. Um, so you can't leave it stranded up there as an aspiration. It has to also have, and that's the interesting thing with the sun, is that they kind of get that. Uh, we've got time, this gentleman on the aisle here. Uh, this group is in a, that lady halfway up. Uh, this is an elected community and now being looked after. That's all we have time for. Sir, very, very quickly, with your name and question. Yes, my name is Rustam Marani. I'm just a parent who's here. Just. Um, uh, with regard to the politics of the common good and with regard to One Nation, all the rest of these grand concepts, aren't there little concrete things you can do which you, neither of you would dispute with each other? I'll give you one example. You could make first aid compulsory in schools in the national curriculum, and no one... You couldn't disagree much yourself, and all of us parents would be happy, and it would fit all these grand concepts of one nation. Okay, well, the, the first stage pressure group, but that, that, it's a relevant example on a bigger point. And this lady, very last, name and quick question. Hi, um, my name is Molly. I'm studying at the Courtauld Institute at the moment. Um, I was uh, what just was your name? Molly. Molly. I was just wondering, uh, since you all, both of you mentioned physics and things like that, um, where the arts fit into the One Nation? Um, everybody seems to bash the arts quite a lot. Uh, I can only put it down to a bad experience with a pot of paint. 
I particularly like your physics and things like that, which shows that. <laughs> I meant to say so. A commitment to that about which you want to know. Uh, Morris, and then we leave uh, Michael the last word, and then I'll finish. Yes. Yeah, um, c- completely. And part of this, you know, it's in relation to the answer to, to Fiona, is, is, is the, to devolve power to, to do this. So first aid, it would be a bit more controversial to say establish first aid is abolish foreign aid. That would be an interesting um, one road to go down. Not necessarily too much consensus on that. Um, and, and then in relation to Molly, you know, this is, this is one of the paradoxes of, of England, I think, to go back to, is, is that we have this incredibly thriving artistic life and that seems to exist almost entirely outside of, of state funding. That's, that's the area, you know, popular music, really subversive um, countercultural forces that really characterise um, English art. So, obviously, the, the, the cultivation of the arts is part of the vocation. I would love, I would love to see... Um, you know, music in particular is, is the thing, you know, re-established as, as, a, as a primary activity in, in schools. And not just classical music, obviously the whole inheritance of black music and its effect in London is, is an enormous thing that, that, hasn't, that, that has never been engaged with but, but needs to be, you know. But it's very difficult to sort of teach rapping, isn't it? You know, so I, I wouldn't go that far. But, um, but uh, certainly you can teach reggae bass. That would be a very good thing. But the whole thing is, is one nation under a groove is, is an important, <laughs> you know, yeah. conversation, you know. It was worth going and, 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 you know, yeah. Bootsy Collins. Anyway, I won't go further. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, on, on first aid, um, I learned first aid actually in a, in a quintessential Blue Labour institution. I don't know how many people here have heard of the Boys' Brigade. Oh. But it, it was a, a basically a proletarian, broadly proletarian organisation, very strong in Scotland and the north of England, quasi-military, very Presbyterian. I naturally joined it, um, and that's where, I, <laughs> uh, that's where I, I learned my first aid. And one of the points I would make is that um, I worry sometimes that we put too much in, into the curriculum, and this is a classic example where voluntarism, I think, would be the, the, the best did answer, you, but it's a fair point. Did you do mouth-to-mouth, res- same-sex mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? <laughs> that was in frowned the, on it. Okay, okay, that. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, but no, we... we, we <laughs> This is probably too much information. We had a plastic doll to do it. Yeah, the plastic doll. Carry on. I know it's all sex But on Molly's point about art, um, one of my uh, favourite new books is a uh, new to me, that is. It's a book by Jonathan Rose called The Intellectual Life of the Working Classes. Mm. One of the, the amazing things about that book is that it makes a point that in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, um, that uh, it was regarded as subversive by uh, uh, the haute bourgeois. Uh, uh, that so many people from working class backgrounds wanted to improve themselves by reading great literature and um, by immersing themselves in great music. And there were examples and stories that that book tells of people who were working as uh, 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 in uh, mills of the time who would arrange the mirror over their workstation so they could see the overseer coming because they were reading things like Dickens and Thomas Carlyle and they didn't want obviously, to lose their job for being seen to be engaging in book learning. And the great thing about that book is that it reinforces the one-nation case for the arts and for educational excellence. And one of the problems that we have at the moment is that it's assumed that uh, there are lots of uh, uh, young people today who can't enjoy and will find inaccessible the sorts of things that their parents and grandparents with much less formal education thirsted to appreciate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Final point... Um, uh, I, I, I don't know whether or not we should put uh, dubstep or um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, garage on the national curriculum, but, but there's a fantastic new free school set up, the Greenwich Free School, by a marvellous man called Tom Schinner, and it has a fantastic 
um, uh, significantly sort of uh, uh, Afro-Caribbean uh, um, uh, student body, and it has a fantastic gospel choir. Um, and anyone who wants to see music at its best, I recommend you go visit Greenwich Free School. Right. Look, uh, we're, we're we're out of time. Let me just say, let me just say that we continue this discussion about one nation, what it means, and so on. We have events on the 28th of May. We have a further event on the 12th of June. It runs into September. There's a website, IPA, LSE. Uh, and we're trying to carry this debate through in a way which means it's not just a one-off. Uh, and, and Lloyd is here who runs the NBA. If any of you fancy doing the, the NBA, you can speak to him afterwards. It's an outstanding degree program. We're delighted to be associated with it. Uh, you're going to have to wait... You're going to have to wait after your lavish round of applause while we guide uh, Morris and Michael off the platform. So I'm going to ask you to do that. But before you do that, you need to, I think, join me. I mean, it's, it's you know, the Secretary of State is somewhat controversial. We acknowledge that. He's here in a public arena. There was no public stream, no, no, no streaming of you. This is an open event to the entire public. This is, in a way, an open space for people. And thank you very much for coming. Yes, Morris, thank you very much for coming and for giving us such an outstanding insight uh, into One Nation Labour, what it's seeking to become. That was really remarkable. Uh, for both of them, entering into the spirit of the IPA's commitment to reason discussion, uh, reminding you you need to stay in your places, I'd like you to <laughs> applaud their contribution now. Thank you very much.